Good morning. morning. All right. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to be here with you guys. I want to welcome those who may be streaming with us online as well. Just glad to have you all here in person. Glad to have those who are joining with us virtually. For the last few weeks, we have been making our way through chapter 12 of the Gospel of Luke, looking at a number of different warnings that Jesus had for his disciples. Jesus recognized that his disciples were in real danger. The religious elite were getting more and more aggressive, and the multitudes were getting more and more restless in their desire for Jesus to lead a revolution against the Roman occupation of the Promised Land. First of all, Jesus warned his disciples about hypocrisy, about pretending to be something that they were not. He told his disciples about how all things will eventually be revealed and how they need not fear those who kill kill the body and after that have no more they can do, but rather they should fear the Lord who has power not only over this life, but over the life to come in eternity. After that, Jesus warned his disciples against the sin of covetousness, having a constant desire and greed for more than what God has supplied. He warned them, saying, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then last week we looked at Jesus' warning to his disciples that pertained to worry and anxiety. Jesus told his disciples not to worry about their life, what they would eat, or about their body, what they would wear. And while the warning against covetousness pertained to those who feel they will never have enough, The warning against worry seemed to pertain to those who fear they will never have enough. Uh, Jesus had instructed his disciples to be rich toward God, and immediately the disciples started worrying about how they could be rich toward God and still have enough left over for themselves. And so that brings us to our text today in Jesus' next exhortation towards his disciples. In our text this morning, Jesus doesn't give a direct warning in this section against a specific sin like he's done in the previous sections. Nonetheless, we still see that there is a definite warning Jesus is alluding to in the words that he speaks. A warning that we all must heed and pay particular close attention to as it relates to us and how we ought to be living our life even today. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 12 verses 35 through 48. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, you have yet to open up to Luke chapter 12. I'd like to invite you to do so at this time. I'm going to read through our text in its entirety, and then I'm going to pray and uh, ask God's blessings and the Holy Spirit's leading in our time of study. Also, I'd like to ask you uh, all to rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. Again, our text is Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. Luke, he continues this narrative of the life of Jesus with the following in chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus is speaking. Uh, The letters in the Bible are red. Let's us know if he, well, if you have a red letter Bible, you know, this is Jesus speaking. If you're not, now you do know. Verse 35, Jesus said, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Surely I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, 
he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Verse 41. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given From him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity that we have to open up your word and allow your word to minister to us, to mold us and shape us. Holy Spirit, we do ask for your leading and guiding. We thank you that uh, your word tells us that... uh, Your part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to lead us in all truth. And so, Lord, we do ask for your Holy Spirit's just leading and guiding upon our time. Lord, we ask that uh, in all that we do here this morning, that you would be glorified. And so, Lord, we give you this time. We ask and pray this all in the name that is above every name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, as you can see from a simple reading of our text this morning, Jesus shares uh, two parables with his disciples that are separated by something Peter spoke to our Lord. In verses 35 through 40, we have the parable of the expectant servant. In verses 42 through 48, we have the parable of the faithful steward. Uh, And in between them, in verse 41, we have the question from the curious disciple. These parables are very similar to one another. In fact, some of your texts may just kind of lump it all together as one parable, but I do think these are to be looked at distinctly. Uh, But they are very similar. They both speak of servants or stewards. Uh, They both speak of a master who is away but eventually returns. They both speak about what the servants or stewards do while their master is away. And they both speak of what could happen when the master returns to the house and finds out what his servants have been up to. Jesus also ends each parable with a personal exhortation or explanation that the disciples were meant to apply to their own lives. At the heart of these parables is the idea that the servants and stewards of the master need to be ready for their master's return, and they need to be diligent to the roles and responsibilities left to them by their master. As I mentioned already, there isn't necessarily a direct command to avoid a certain sin or to beware of something as he's previously done in our study of chapter 12. But I still see in these parables a warning that Jesus is giving. It is a warning against negligence. 
Okay, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines negligence as the failure to exercise the care that a reasonably prudent person would exercise in like circumstances. It defines neglect as to give little attention or respect to, to disregard, okay, to leave undone or unattended to, especially through carelessness. Jesus through these parables, is warning his disciples about negligence, about not giving due diligence or regard to what our master has for each of us. And so the title of our study this morning is going to be Beware of Negligence. Okay, Beware of Negligence. As we go through our text, we're going to do our best to break down and understand these two parables that Jesus shared with his disciples. Remember that a very simple way to look at a parable is to look at them as an earthly story or example that conveys a heavenly truth. Jesus often taught in parables, and sometimes the meaning was pretty straightforward, while other times the meaning was a little more clouded. Uh, Sometimes the disciples wouldn't quite understand what Jesus was saying, and they would often ask clarifying questions or ask Jesus to teach them the meaning or the interpretation behind particular parables. Uh, Those are my favorite parables, okay? Those are the parables that I like to teach from because Jesus gives us the answers, and so it makes it really easy uh, to break down. Um, Our text today does not have such a breakdown given to us. And so we are left to try and figure it out for ourselves as we look to his word and his spirit to lead and guide us. Hopefully, we'll be able to get through this with a clear understanding of what Jesus was teaching to his disciples and how it applies to us, how we can take these parables and apply them to our own lives today. So let's begin our breakdown of these parables by taking a look once again at the opening verses of our text, the first part of the parable of the expectant servant in verses 35 and 36 as we kind of set the scene. Jesus says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. We'll pause right there. Jesus opens up this first parable with a description of what his disciples should be like. They should be like men, okay, these are household servants, who are eagerly waiting the return of their master to his home. Now, in order to understand the significance of this parable, we want to break down all of the parts and elements that Jesus referenced so that we may gain a fuller and richer understanding of all that Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And so let's break these specifics down little by little, part by part. We'll start with the description of what it means to have your waist be girded. Okay? Uh, that's not something we would normally uh, speak. We don't talk like that anymore. Uh, back in the day, some people, uh, often most people, wore long robes that would cover the entire body. They'd go from the shoulders down below the knee, reaching to the feet. These robes would usually be cinched with a belt or a strap um, across the waist. And while these robes were nice enough to walk around in, they were not very conducive for any sort of rigorous activity, uh, any sort of strenuous work. Uh, They uh, would often limit full range of motion and movement. And so people would take their garments, okay, they would lift it up and then binding it about their hips 
any time that they needed to do any sort of strenuous activity. And so the idea behind a servant having his waist girded carries the idea that the servant is ready to do some sort of strenuous activity, some sort of work. They are properly clothed for service and ready for that. Jesus also described the servants as having their lamps burning. The lamps that are mentioned here are very specific types of lamps. These are not just wax candles that uh, would be lit within a home, but rather the word used here for lamp speaks of a portable lamp fed with oil that has a wick that was to be lit. To have your lamps burning would imply that your lamp is well stocked with oil and that the wick is properly trimmed and maintained so that it can burn for hours on end. Jesus told his disciples to be like men waiting for their master. That word wait implies not simply sitting around aimlessly, but remaining in a state of constant expectation and anticipation for concerning a future event. Okay? These servants were to be in constant state of expectation that their master was going to return to them, anticipating his arrival at any given time. In this account is also the mention of where the master was at. The master is said to have been returning from a wedding. Okay? The word wedding is actually in the plural in the Greek. It doesn't mean that he went to several different weddings, but moreover that he was engaged in all of the various festivities, the wedding festivals uh, that are associated with a traditional Jewish wedding. Uh, Jewish weddings could last well into the night and the festivities associated with them would actually carry on for the following week. Uh, On the day of the wedding, the bride would wait for the groom at her parents' house. And when the groom was ready, he would set out for the bride's parents' house, accompanied by his closest friends and musicians, singers. And if it was at nighttime, there would even be people that were bearing torches uh, to kind of lead the procession. The groom would arrive to the bride's parents' house and with their blessing, bring the bride back to his own house or to his father's house, inviting friends and neighbors and loved ones from the community to join with him along the way. It would become quite the procession. And there would be a ceremony and there would be a great feast and the marriage would be consummated that night in the nuptial chamber. But the festivities would continue on to the next day and continuing for seven more days. Now, not everyone would stay for all of the wedding festivities throughout the entire week. And so there would be uncertainty as to when someone would return from their celebration. Maybe they weren't enjoying themselves at the wedding. Oftentimes wine was served at these weddings, and so maybe he had a little bit too much, stayed, enjoyed the next day, and, and hung out. Maybe they're like, no, nah, you know, this party's not happening. I'm going to take off and go home. Whatever it may be, you don't know how long someone would actually stay. If they would stay for all seven days of the festivities, only a couple days, would they come home at night? Would they come home during the day? there would be a lot of uncertainty as to when they would return. And so that is the idea being portrayed here. Okay? The master is away at a wedding festival. Nobody knows when the master is going to return from the wedding. Nonetheless, Jesus states that whenever the master does return, the servants need to be ready to open to him immediately. And the key aspect here is the servant's immediate 
response. There was to be no delay, no hesitation on behalf of the servants. As soon as the master returned, they needed to be ready to receive him, to welcome him home, tending to whatever needs he may have. And so, how do all of these things correlate to what Jesus was saying on a spiritual level? Okay, what is that heavenly truth that this parable is meaning to convey to us? Okay, what were Jesus' disciples and what are we to take away from this on a spiritual level? Let me suggest a few things. Okay? Looking at these things once again. Having our way skirted, it spoke of being properly clothed. Of having your attire ready to serve the Lord. And whenever I think of clothing and putting on proper attire, I am reminded of what Paul the Apostle said to the churches. To the church in Rome, he said, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. To the church in, uh, of the Galatians, he wrote, For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. Okay, to put on Christ, it speaks of being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If we are to be properly attired for the master, we must put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? We must be clothed in his righteousness. And only when we are properly clothed in the righteousness of Christ will we be fit for the master's use and ready to serve him. Well, when Jesus spoke of having our lamps burning, I believe Jesus may have been referring to our constant need and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. You see, these were oil lamps. And oil is often associated with the person and the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Oftentimes, kings, priests, and prophets would be anointed for service with oil, and it was a picture of God's Spirit being poured out upon them. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read of Samuel's anointing of David. Uh, where it states, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Jesus himself was known as the Christ, the Messiah, okay? the anointed one. That's what Christos means. That's what Mashiach means. It means anointed one. Okay? And it was speaking of God's Spirit that was upon him. Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah early on in his ministry when he started his public ministry where it states, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. When Jesus had finished reading from the scroll, he closed up the book, he gave it back to the attendant, he sat down and then he proclaimed to Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Peter even testified in the book of Acts of how Jesus was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and with power. The Lord God gave Zechariah a vision 
of a golden lampstand with olive trees providing a constant supply of oil to the lampstand. And in explanation of the vision, the Lord declared to Zechariah, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, the oil again was symbolically pointing to the anointing power of God's Holy Spirit that was upon Zerubbabel and Joshua as the leaders of God's people at that time. If we are to be the servant, having our lamps burning, constantly burning, we must depend upon the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. We cannot operate in our own strength and in our own efforts, but rather we must depend upon God's Holy Spirit to empower us, upon His Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us in our service. When Jesus instructed His disciples to be like servants waiting for their master, I think it's plain to see that He's referring to His own return and our need to be waiting for Him. Again, the idea is not some sort of passive waiting, but an expectant waiting. We must live our lives with the constant expectation that Christ is going to return. We wait with great anticipation for the day that Christ will return because Jesus promised. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The angels declared to the disciples on the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus Christ is going to come back for us here on this earth and we must live and wait for him with a great expectation, with a great anticipation for that day. And Paul wrote to Titus, speaking about how looking for Jesus' return ought to impact our day-to-day living. He wrote this in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, as we look for and anticipate His return, His glorious appearing, it ought to impact how we live our lives. It ought to have a purifying effect upon us. That's what John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, how everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. Jesus Christ is going to return for us and we are to be actively waiting for that day with great anticipation, with great expectation. Jesus said the master was away at a wedding and that his return could be at any time. And in this we see and note that Jesus could return at any time as well. No one knows the day or the hour of his return. Jesus testified himself, stating, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus could come back today. Okay? He could come back this evening or, or tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. We don't know when he's going to come back, but we know he is going to come for us. Okay? 
what is our responsibility then? Well, we need to be ready when he comes and he knocks on that door. We need to be ready to welcome him as Jesus described in the parable. When Jesus returns, we will need to be ready immediately. Okay? There won't be any time to finish things that were left undone. Okay? There will need to be an immediate response, which means we can't wait for the day Jesus comes back before we start to get ready for him. Okay? You have to be ready now. We need to be ready as soon as he says it's time to go, we're gone. Okay? We need to be, respond immediately without any delay. Jesus' is coming for us is described by Paul in 1 Corinthians as a split moment. Okay? It, it comes, it's the twinkling of an eye, okay? faster than the, the blink of an eye. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. There will not be any time to get right with the Lord. Okay? And so don't put off getting ready for Jesus. Get ready today and live each subsequent day as if it could be the day that Jesus comes back for you. Let's continue our text. We're going to see a few other things Jesus had to say in this parable regarding the master, his servants, and his return. Verse 37 says, Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so blessed are those servants. We'll pause there. In this section of the parable, Jesus speaks of the actions of the master and what he will do when he returns and finds his servants watching and waiting expectantly. Jesus speaks of how the servants will be blessed if the master should return and find them watching, waiting, ready for his return. That word blessed, it speaks of more than just mere happiness. It speaks of possessing the favor of God. It's a state of being marked by fullness and satisfaction that is from God. You see, happiness depends upon what's happening. It's based upon circumstances. But blessing and satisfaction is not dependent upon circumstances or happenings. It is a state of being that comes from God, satisfying us in every season and in every situation. The master of the house will bless his servant and do something quite shocking. Jesus describes the master of the house taking upon himself the form of a servant and actually girding himself and serving his servants. Now, this would be a shocking sight for sure. Nobody would ever expect the master of the house to do such a thing for his servants. Jesus also spoke of how blessed the servants would be if the master were to return in the second or, or third watch. Uh, this refers to a time in the middle of the night during the, the normal sleeping hours. When everyone else was asleep, if the master returned at that time and he found his servants wait, waiting, watching, they would be tremendously blessed. So how, do this apply, how does this apply to the disciples and to us? Again, I'll suggest a few things. Just as the servants would be blessed by their master, we too will be blessed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ upon his return, and he finds us watching. Okay? We will be satisfied in the Lord. We will be content. We will have that state of being of just complete completion and satisfaction in him. No matter the time, whether at middle of the night when everyone else is sleeping or at a time when nobody else would expect him, Jesus says that we will be blessed by the Lord, satisfied in him when he returns and finds us watching and waiting for him. Now, that word watching is an interesting one because it speaks of being awake or alert. 
but it also carries in it the idea of being prayerful. Okay? You might be wondering, how is that connected to prayerful? Let me explain. This word is the same word that's used when Jesus refers, uh, when Matthew refers to Jesus's trip into the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of you probably are familiar with that portion of scripture. Jesus led his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he invited his disciples to watch with him. He said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Okay? Jesus went off. He prayed to his father. He returned. He found his disciples sleeping. Okay? He said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? He said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we see that there is this connection between this idea of being watching and praying. And it reminds us of our need to be in prayer as we wait for the Lord. Prayer speaks of our communication line with the Lord. It speaks of the importance of developing an intimate relationship with the Lord. You see, any good relationship, whether it be our relationship with our Father, our relationship with friends or family, loved ones, spouses, children, okay, relationships are built upon a good foundation of strong communication. And so, as we wait and watch, we are to be in prayer with the Lord, developing our relationship with Him, spending time with Him, speaking to Him, sharing with the Lord our praises, sharing with Him our prayers, our concerns, our temptations, our victories, our setbacks, our failures. Just being open with Him in communication, speaking to Him, and also taking the time to hear from Him. In communication, it's a, a two-way uh, street, right? As we take time to pray, we also need to take time to wait upon the Lord to hear from Him, that we might develop that strong relationship as we wait upon the Lord. Can, let's continue. Look at verse 39. He says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what the hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Jesus changes things up a bit in the middle of this parable and speaks of a situation regarding a thief that came in the middle of the night and broke into the master's house. Jesus says if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. The implication is that the master didn't know. He was unprepared, not watching. His house was broken into. The thief was able to get whatever he came for. And so Jesus makes somewhat of an obvious statement here regarding what the master of the house would have done had he known when the thief was coming. Obviously, he would have watched. Okay? He would have protected his house against the thief. He would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Okay? Likewise, we understand that, right? If you knew when a thief was going to come to your house, wouldn't you do something about it? Right? You would... You would make sure that your house was secure. You would make sure that you were awake, uh, that you were there to scare them off. Um, that's kind of obvious, right? We wouldn't just, oh, okay, thief's coming at 3.45 in the morning. I'm going to go to sleep. I don't really care about it. You know, of course not, okay? We're going to be ready. We're going to be waiting. We're going to get that guy out of there, not allow them to break into our house. So how does this apply to the parable Jesus just taught? Read verse 40. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus described how the Son of Man comes like a thief in the night. Okay? He's coming at an hour you do not expect. 
And the application is that we must be ready at all times. We must be prepared for his coming at any and every moment. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 states, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5.6 states, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. We don't want to get caught off guard. We don't want to be caught surprised by Jesus's return. We must live our lives ready for Jesus's return. And so here is the application from the whole entire, uh, pers- this first parable. And I think we can just sum it up with a simple question. Are you ready for Jesus to come back today? If you were to, I, I want you to really contemplate that question this morning. Are you ready for Jesus to come back today? Or are there things in your life that you feel still need to be done? Maybe there are family members or friends that you still need to share the love of Christ with, that you need to share the gospel with. Maybe there are people that you need to get right with, that you need to make amends with, that you need to reconcile with. Perhaps there are sins that you're entertaining or that you're caught up in at the moment that you would be ashamed of should Christ return and catch you in the act. Repent today. Okay? Seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Do all that you can to be ready for Jesus' return. For once it happens, you guys, you won't have any more time to act. Okay? Get things ready now so that you won't regret things later. Now, before we move on to the next parable, we're going to look at the question from the curious disciple in verse 41. Let's read it. It says, Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? Peter asked a very important question here regarding to whom Jesus was directing these words about being ready for Jesus' return. Were these words for the disciples only? Or were they for all the people, the great multitude that surrounded them? We remember there's a huge multitude that's trampling upon everyone at this time. We read about that in the beginning of chapter 12. Is there, are these words for everybody there or just disciples? Okay, Or we might ask similarly, is this for all of us today or is this just for believers? Okay. Now, this was an important question because it impacts how we interpret these parables. Are we to understand these parables about servants as pertaining to all people or just to the disciples, just to followers of the Lord, believers? How we answer that question will have a drastic impact upon the interpretation and application of what Jesus is saying. Now, the interesting thing that we will find is that Jesus doesn't directly answer Peter's question with a simple answer saying, this parable is for everyone, or no, this parable is just for you, Peter, and the disciples. He doesn't do that. Uh, instead, Jesus answers Peter's question with a question of his own, okay? And, and Jesus did that a lot, okay? He would answer questions with questions, okay? And get people to think, okay? Uh, Jesus is basically going to explain that the servant in the master's house will be evident based upon his actions, okay? Based upon what he does and how he lives his life. As we go through this next parable, we will see that the teaching and application is very much along the same line as this previous parable. The main thrust of the parable has to deal with being diligent with our time while the master is away, with doing the right things while waiting upon the return of the master. And it is my belief that Jesus is not speaking about a specific 
particular steward here, but more so that he is describing a hypothetical steward. And not just one hypothetical steward. My understanding and what I believe we see here is that Jesus is describing the actions of four different potential stewards. The first of which he describes in verses 42 through 44. So let's take a look at how Jesus describes this first hypothetical potential steward. Verse 42, he says, And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. The first hypothetical steward that we're going to identify, we're going to identify as the faithful and wise steward. Now, a steward is simply a servant that is given responsibility of overseeing and managing the household affairs. The steward uh, uses his position to ensure that chores and duties around the house are taken care of and that all the people in the house are cared for as well, including other servants within the house. The faithful and wise steward will prove himself to his master by doing what was left in his charge while the master is away. And when the master returns and finds his steward faithfully rendering the service left to him, Jesus once again uses the phrase blessed to describe how he will be satisfied and fulfilled by his master. The master will bless the steward and give to him even greater responsibility, leaving him in charge of not only his household, but over all of his goods. You see, you guys, God has given to each of us a certain role to play in his kingdom. We are all called, we are all called, excuse me, to serve in some form or capacity. And we all have been given certain responsibilities that God has entrusted us with. And the expectation from the Lord is that we would be this faithful and wise steward okay, that is busy about fulfilling the roles and the responsibilities left for us. God doesn't measure our success you know, by the number of people that we share the gospel with or by, you know, how often we volunteer for children's ministry, or by how often we, you know, or how much we give to the church, or any of these other things that, you know, some of us do, and some of us are gifted at, and some of us, you know, uh, have the responsibility of, okay? That's not how God measures success. God measures success through faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 4.2 states, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. That is Jesus' requirement, that you be faithful. We have all been given different roles, different responsibilities, different talents, different giftings, different callings. God isn't going to measure our success based upon callings and giftings that he's never given to us. He's going to measure our success upon whether we were faithful with whatever he gave us. Some have been given more than others and more will be required of them. Some have been given less than others and less will be required of them in comparison to others. The wise and faithful steward will prove himself by his actions. He will be faithful to complete the charge given to him by his master. 
And I think the question that we must ask ourselves is whether we're being faithful with what God has given to us. Don't get caught up looking at others and whether they're being faithful with what they've been given. Look to your own self and what God has given to you. Prove yourself the wise and faithful steward by being diligent and not neglecting what God has left for you. Now, not all the stewards will prove themselves wise and faithful. What we have in the rest of our text this morning are descriptions of what I believe are three other types of stewards that will come against the judgment of their master for not being faithful. They are all unfaithful stewards. Take a look at the description of the first unfaithful steward in verses 45 and 46. But if that servant, this hypothetical servant, says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. I deemed this steward the abusive steward. Okay? The description Jesus gives here is that of a steward that abused their position as steward and did as they pleased. Instead of taking care of things in the household and serving everyone, they abused everyone. They beat the servants and fulfilled their physical pleasures through eating and drinking in excess, getting drunk. They lived for self instead of living for the master. In fact, they took upon themselves the role of the master, treating people and things as if they were his own to do whatever he pleased with. They thought of themselves as the master and they thought they could live a life free from the responsibility given to them from their own master. And Jesus says, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that is a very severe judgment. Okay? Um, I'd like to say that this is you know, a, a, a way to say, oh, he's not really saying that. No, that's exactly what he's saying. You're going to be cut in two, cut in half, sawn in half. Okay? Uh, that's what this means. <laughs> very severe judgment for this abusive steward. Okay? And I believe that this is speaking of hell. When Jesus returns, he will divide between the sheep and the goats, between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the faithful and the unfaithful, between those who live for the Lord and those who live for self. Jesus declared, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many, and that's scary, okay? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, Jesus described what it will be like at the end of this age when he said the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend all those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
A few verses later, he reiterated what it would be like at the end of the age. When he returns, he said, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I want you guys to note something here regarding this abusive servant. It all seemed to go wrong and downhill when the servant began to think his master was delaying his return. You see, when we begin to think, ah, Jesus isn't coming back. When we begin to think, we've got time. Okay, when we begin to think, judgment, that's not coming. Okay, that's far off. We will inevitably start down this road of abuse. That is why it is so important that we live with that mindset of Christ coming back at any time. We have to live our lives with the expectation that His return is imminent. And doing so will protect us from the temptation of going down this road of abuse and recklessness. Jesus describes another potential servant in verse 47. Read with me. He says, and that servant... Okay, again, I believe this is a hypothetical servant. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. Jesus characterizes another potential servant here in verse 47 that knew his master's will, knew what his master wanted from him, and yet did not bother to do it. I've called this steward the disloyal steward. This steward knew his master's will, but didn't bother to prepare himself or do anything according to his master's will. This servant didn't necessarily abuse his power, nor indulge his flesh and give in to his own physical desires, but he was nonetheless just as unfaithful as the previous abusive steward. He did not do what was left to him. And I am reminded of what James speaks about in his epistle. You see, there are sins of commission, sins we actively engage in, like the abusive steward that engaged in sinful pleasures and excess. But there are also sins of omission, sins that we are guilty of by not engaging in certain activities and certain things. James writes, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. We can get involved in sin by not doing what we know to be the right thing to do. Sins of omission. And that seems to be the case here for the disloyal steward. He knew what to do. He knew what his master's will and heart was, but he just didn't do it. Okay? He did not prepare himself for his master, nor bother to accomplish any of the things that were left to him by his master. And as such, Jesus says that he will be beaten with many stripes. Again, a severe punishment, not as bad as the abusive servant that's going to be sawn in two, okay? but nonetheless, a, a very severe punishment. He will be beaten with many stripes. I believe this is, again, speaking of hell and of judgment. This steward will be held responsible for that which he knew needed to be done. And because he didn't do it, he would face a strict and severe punishment. I believe, as I mentioned, that this is speaking of hell. When Jesus returns to, and, and, and it's our time, okay, there's only one of two places that you're going. And you're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. And I don't think we would ever associate heaven with being beaten with many stripes. And so this leads me to believe the disloyal servant would face eternal separation in hell, just like the abusive steward. 
But there's one more type of steward mentioned in the verse, first part of verse 48. Take a look at, at it, and we'll wrap this parable up. Verse 48 says, But he who did not know, again, another potential servant, this one who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. Here Jesus brings up the one who seems to be in the opposite seat of the disloyal steward. Instead of knowing his master's will, this steward did not know, yet still committed things deserving of stripes. Jesus says that his punishment will be less severe. He will be beaten with few in comparison to the disloyal steward who was beaten with many. I call this steward the foolish steward. Okay? And I do so because it reminds me of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 about those who try to claim ignorance. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You see, there are those, you know, maybe you've heard people, skeptics, naysayers, who like to ask about, you know, what about that person who, you know, grew up in the remote jungles of, you know, Africa or South America or wherever, some other remote place, right? What about that person who never heard the gospel of Jesus and they don't think it's fair that God would judge them for not having faith in God? But you see, Romans chapter 1 makes it very clear. There are none and have a legitimate excuse. God has revealed himself to each and every one of his creations so that they are without excuse. The truth of the matter is that even though those who may not have heard of Jesus um, and, and responded to the gospel message or had an opportunity to respond to the gospel, God has revealed himself to them. And they know God. He has manifested himself to them, yet they did not glorify him as God. Instead, they allowed their foolish hearts to be darkened. They became the fool. And we know that it is the fool that says in his heart that there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works, Psalms 14.1 tells us. This steward who did not know his master's will, but still did things deserving of punishment, will receive his punishment. But it will not be as severe as the disloyal servant who knew his master's will and chose not to do so, and it won't nearly be as severe as the abusive servant who you know, just lived for himself. Okay? Now, I, need to, I need to explain something here that might confuse some people, might give you cause to, to question, and I want you to give me the benefit of the doubt and allow me to explain here something, okay? Although the suffering will be severe, and I believe everlasting for all those in hell, I do believe that the specific degrees of punishment and suffering will differ from one person to the next. I, I, and I do believe that the Bible speaks of a more 
uh, and less severe degree of punishment dependent upon a number of factors in one's life. Okay? These factors seem to be included to include the extent to which a person has abandoned himself to sin. If someone's like, oh, I don't care, I'm just going to live it up, okay? and I'm just going to stack sin on top of one another, and I'm going to you know, just live for the flesh, okay? um, God's going to hold that person accountable for all of their actions. Okay? And so the extent to which we abandon ourselves to sin, I believe will change the degree of punishment and judgment to the extent of one's influence on other people towards sin. If we're leading other people into sin, that is said to be a greater judgment to to come upon us. Jesus talked about leading children astray, and he said it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and that you'd be thrown into the ocean, basically, and drown than it would be for you to lead one of his little ones astray. So there's this greater, severe judgment for those that lead people astray. And I do believe that the amount of knowledge of the truth that one has rejected will also determine the degree of punishment. Now, I want to be careful here, okay? okay? This is not to say that hell will be less than perfect for some. Okay? We believe God's judgment is perfect, that it is complete. But Scripture indicates that some will have in a sense, a greater capacity for suffering or that some will bear a fiercer measure of the wrath of God upon them. Jesus spoke of certain cities incurring a greater judgment because of the works that were done in them. Jesus also spoke of how we will have to give an account for every idle word that we may speak. And the book of Revelation speaks of how when men will be judged at the great white throne judgment according to their works, all of their at works, they will, the books will be opened up and it's going to be like, okay, here is everything that you did, okay? And it's all going to be tallied up and you're going to give an account for those things. Now, we understand this principle in regards to heaven as well. Okay? Again, let me explain. We all won't share in the same exact experience in heaven, okay? We will all be in the same place and we will enjoy the everlasting presence of the Lord and we will all bow before him and we will join with the angelic host in singing his praises for all of eternity. But the Bible speaks of how different people will be given different rewards based upon their faithfulness and the works that they did. Crowns will be given to certain individuals who were faithful with certain things, certain missions, okay? Our works, they will be tested by fire, whether they were made of precious metal or whether they were of wood, straw, and hay. And they're going to be tested, like I said, by fire. If anyone's work which he has built on it, referring to the foundation of Christ, endures, he will receive a reward, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so we get the sense, the idea that in heaven, we're going to have different rewards. We're going to have different, uh, you know, works that we've done that will be tested by fire. And and at the end, it's going to be, okay, man, this is what you did. And here's your reward. Okay. Now I want you to understand heaven will be perfectly complete for everyone. We're not going to be in heaven and be like, oh man, like I missed out on, you know, this or that. No, no, we are going to be perfectly content and satisfied and blessed in heaven, okay? We're going to have, I believe we will have various abilities to enjoy various degrees of reward, just as I believe the same is true in regards to hell. 
Both the rewards and the judgments will be perfect. They will be complete. They just won't be the same for everyone. Does everyone understand what I'm getting across here? If I've confused you, come talk to me after service. In the rest of verse 48, Jesus gives the application of this particular parable. Read it with me. We'll complete our study together. He basically says, verse 48, the rest of it says, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. God is going to hold us accountable to that which he's given to us. For those that have been given much, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Basically, the idea is, if we're faithful with little, okay, we will be given more. And as we continue to be faithful with whatever God gives us, he will continue to give us more. If we're faithless with what he's given us, Jesus actually says, take away what's been given to them. <laughs> God is going to hold us accountable okay, to what he has left for us. Our title for this study was Beware of Negligence. We need to make sure that we are faithful with all that God has entrusted to our care. We need to be the expectant servant, anticipating and watching for his master's return. We need to be the wise and faithful steward that's being diligent to the roles, responsibilities, and tasks that God has entrusted us to. We don't want to be caught off guard. We don't want to be unprepared for Christ's return. And we definitely don't want to be like any of the unfaithful stewards who are abusive, disloyal, and foolish in their actions. May God lead us and guide us and empower us in all that he has given for each of us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this opportunity that we have to just get into it. I know we went a little bit long here this uh, morning, Lord, but just diving into this parable, trying to understand it, trying to make application. Holy Spirit, I pray that um, you would take the truths of your word and allow us to apply them to our lives. And Lord, as I believe um, what we've covered here, Lord, the emphasis is we need to be ready. We need to be ready now for you, Lord. And I pray that each and every one of us that are here this morning today, Lord, that we can answer that question in the affirmative. Are we ready for you to return today? Yes, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, we pray. Lord, come quickly. I pray that we would not have any sense of things that are undone. Lord, I, I am reminded of Paul and his tension. Lord, he, he so longed to be with you. He knew that that was far greater, but he also knew and understand the roles and the responsibility that you had given to him to minister to the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be able to live in that tension as well, that we would long for you, to long to be in your presence, but at the same time, Lord, that we would understand the role and responsibility that you've given to us and that we'd be faithful with what you've given to us. May we be a blessing to those in your kingdom. May we be a blessing in bringing other people into your kingdom by the work of your Holy Spirit upon our lives. And Lord, we do ask that as you tarry, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would empower us and lead us and guide us to live the life of the expectant servant, to live the life of the wise and faithful steward. Lord, we know that we can't do it in and of ourselves and we need your Spirit's power and strength. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.